open your Bibles with me to Psalm 71. It's found on page 484 of your pew Bibles. This is Psalm 71. We're going to be reading and looking at the entire Psalm today. Please read along with me. This is going to be read from, uh, I changed my translation recently to the Legacy Standard Bible. So I'm going to be reading from that. So if you have trouble following along, the words of the Legacy Standard will be on the screen behind me. Psalm 71, beginning in verse 1. In you, O Yahweh, I have taken refuge. Let me never be ashamed. In your righteousness, deliver me and protect me. Incline your ear to me and save me. Be to me a rock of habitation to which I may continually come. You have given the command to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. Protect me, O my God, out of the hand of the wicked, out of the grasp of the unrighteous and ruthless man. For you are my hope, O Lord Yahweh. You are my trust from my youth. By you I have been sustained from my birth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. I have become a marvel to many, for you are my strong refuge. My mouth is filled with your praise and with your beauty all day long. Do not cast me off in the time of old age. Do not forsake me when my strength fails. For my enemies have spoken against me, and those who watch my life have counseled together, saying God has forsaken him. Pursue and seize him, for there is no one to deliver. O God, do not be far from me. O my God, hasten to my help. Let those who accuse my soul be ashamed and consumed. Let them be wrapped up with reproach and dishonor who seek to do me evil. But as for me, I will wait continually and will praise you yet more and more. My mouth shall recount your righteousness and of your salvation all day long, for I do not know the sum of them. I will come with the mighty deeds of Lord Yahweh. I will bring to remembrance your righteousness, yours alone. O God, you have taught me from my youth, and I still declare your wondrous deeds. And even when I am old and gray, O God, do not forsake me. Until I declare your strength to this generation, your might to all who are to come, for your righteousness, O God, reaches to the heavens. You who have done great things, O God, who is like you? You who have shown me many troubles and evils will revive me again and will bring me up again from the depths of the earth. May you increase my greatness and turn to comfort me. I will also praise you with a harp. Even your truth, O my God, to you I will sing praises with the lyre, O Holy One of Israel. My lips shall sing for joy when I sing praises to you and my soul, which you have redeemed. My tongue will also utter your righteousness all day long, for they are ashamed, for they are humiliated who seek to do me evil. Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, your word is such a gift to us. You've sent it to us to teach us, to rebuke us, to reprove us, Father, and to encourage us. 
I ask that you would use it for that purpose today. That you would teach us all the things you would have us know about you this morning in this message. And that you would encourage us to lean on you and to trust you more and more. We know that your word is true, Father. We know that it comes from the only true source we have, which is you, from your very soul. Everything you speak comes to be. You told the world to be, and it was. You asked light to come forth, and it did. You called all of us out of sin, and we came. Because your word is powerful, Father. It transforms, and it affects people. We ask that it would affect our hearts today. That it would transform us, that it would renew us as it should daily. That by hearing it and learning to appropriate it, Father, we would become all the more like Christ, your son. We would learn to trust him and we would learn to glorify you in our lives and even in our struggles. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a word I keep hearing from Christians lately. It's a word I've used myself many times, and it's a word that seems to be all the more prevalent in the lives of Christians, and that's the word depression. If you were with us a couple weeks ago, brothers and sisters that were baptized often spoke about the depression that they were feeling when God called them to them. Brothers and sisters that are in this, you know, in this uh, congregation with us, I've spoken to about depression. I myself have had a, a, you know, encounters with depression going back. Nearly 30 years. It seems to affect us when this world affects us and this world seems to infect our hearts and our souls. We get depressed. We get bogged down with struggles. We get bogged down with, 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 with sin. We get bogged down with the way the world wants us to act. And we also get bogged down with the ways in which we seem to fail. Reflecting that character and that image of God in which we were created. Well, God's word is here specifically to teach us and to encourage us, especially when we feel things like depression. When I get low, I tend to turn to the Psalms. The Psalms deal a lot with with believers who are struggling in some way, shape or form. They're either struggling with sin or they're failing God or they're struggling with other men and other people in their lives And they have nowhere to turn, so they turn to the only one that they know they can count on, and that is God. And that's what these psalms are. There's a quote by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones who said that the psalms have always proved to be a great resource of solace and encouragement to God's people throughout the centuries. Here we are able to watch noble souls struggling with their problems and with themselves. Sometimes they are elated at other times depressed, but they are always honest with themselves. And that is why they are of such real value to us if we also are honest with ourselves. So as we go through this message, I would ask you to take a long look at yourself. If you're struggling with things, ask yourself why. If you're struggling with things, ask yourself to whom you turn to when things get at their darkest. Whom are you putting your trust in? Who is your rock? Who is your salvation? If you are in Christ, I hope that this message, that this word of God encourages you to trust God more and more in your lives. If you are not in Christ, then I hope that this word teaches you why you can trust him. 
He is the only one that is true. He is the only one that you can truly depend on. And if you're unsure on whether or not you need God or not, then I hope that this word shows you why you need to trust him. Why you are in absolute danger if you do not trust him. But note, this is not a three-point plan of trust. I can't give you the five, you know, resources you can, you can turn to. This isn't a five-point plan. This isn't a five-year plan. This isn't the 20 things you need to know in order to trust God. You either trust him or you do not trust him. What's going to determine whether or not you trust God is if you know God. So that's what I'm hoping that this word shows you today. I hope it shows you how you can know God in three key aspects. Know him as a protector, as a sustainer, and as a savior. I don't really have any context to give you for this psalm. We're not told really anything about it. We don't have an author labeled here. In some manuscripts, some of the old uh, Septuagint, old Greek versions of the Old Testament, there were some that suggested it might be of David or of people that were dedicating the psalm to David. Some people suggested it might be Jeremiah's psalm. We don't know. The word doesn't tell us. So therefore, we don't need to know. We can take it at face value for what it is. There's plenty within this psalm to tell us what it is about. We don't know the occasion But there are certain words that keep cropping up here and there over and over again. Words like refuge or versions of refuge. The Bible has this way, especially in the Psalms, of saying the same thing over and over in different ways. So you'll see refuge a few times. You'll see righteousness, especially the righteousness of God mentioned over and over again. You'll see the concept of shame. You'll see the word continually used three times. Very interesting, the words that it uses, the things that we should do continually. You'll see the word forsaken, and that as the psalm culminates to the end, you're going to see the word praise a lot, and versions of it. So the first thing we see in this psalm, beginning with the first stanza of six verses, is the psalmist trusting in God. Verse 1, in you, O Yahweh, I have taken refuge, let me never be ashamed. Just those first three words, in you, O Yahweh. This psalmist is not agonizing here. This psalmist is not trying, he's not intending to spend this entire psalm deciding whether or not he's going to trust God. He's already made his mind up. In you, O Yahweh, I take my refuge. Is that something you have already made up your mind about? This psalmist is declaring him right here to already be his protector. In you, O Yahweh, I have taken refuge. I'm seeking solace in you. I'm seeking comfort in you. My protection is you. There's nowhere else I can turn. Only to you. And the reason why he does that is because he knows his name. In you, O Yahweh. This is the covenant name of the God of Israel. I am who I am. This is the name that was given to Moses at the burning bush. When Moses said, to whom shall I say your people is is being sent? He says, I am who I am. You tell them, I am who I am has sent you to them. This is his name. This is a personal God. He's not one of the many unknown gods. He's not one of the many nameless gods. He's not one of the many impotent gods with no power over anything. 
This is Yahweh. This is the one who has already delivered his people out of Egypt. This is a God he knows. This is a God he already has a personal relationship with. So he says, in you, O Yahweh, I have taken refuge. Let me never be ashamed. He says, I've gone all in on you. Please don't fail me. He says, in your righteousness, deliver me and protect me. Incline your ear to me and save me. He's saying, do all of this in your righteousness. The righteousness of God is establishing who he is. He is good. It's in God's goodness. It's in in God's righteousness that he established this world. He declared from, from his own decree before the foundations of the world that everything he did would be good and it would be used for good for his people. And your righteousness deliver me and protect me because I know that whatever you do for me will be good. So incline your ear, hear my prayers. Listen to what I say because I'm turning to you. I'm taking my refuge in you, O Lord. I need you to save me. Incline your ear to me and save me. That's the goal. I need to be protected from all of my enemies. I need you to come in here as a great hero and to protect me from danger and to remove all obstacles, all struggles, all those things that can hurt and harm me. You are the only one that can do it. I turn to you because you have already demonstrated your goodness to your people because you are righteous. Everything that you declare is righteous. Everything that you declare is good. So I come to you, my rock of habitation. That's another form of refuge to which I may, as I said before, the word continually, that I may continually come. This isn't a one-shot deal. It's not a get-out-of-jail-free card. It's not a free pass. It's not a, a, a temporary stay of execution. You can keep coming to God. You can keep coming to the Lord over and over and over again when you need help and when you're looking to seek help from your troubles. God is where you turn. And you can keep turning there every day, every moment for your entire life. Yes, amen. Because that's the kind of God He is. He doesn't get tired, He doesn't get sick, He doesn't get bored. He doesn't cast you off. He says, I am a rock to you. I am immovable. Nobody can move me, not even you. You can't do anything that can make me cast you out. You can't do anything that would make me not want to save you. I am the Lord your God and I will protect you. Come to me. And that's what the psalmist says. You are my rock of habitation. I will come to you continually. You have given the command to save me. You've already made your mind up about this. You've already commanded that I would be one of your saved children. You are my rock, my fortress. Just keep saying it over and over in different ways. You are the only source of protection. You are my protector. Protect me, O God, out of the hand of the wicked, out of the grasp of the unrighteous, And ruthless man, for you are my hope, O Lord Yahweh. You are my trust from my my youth. 
He says, out of the hand of the unrighteous and ruthless man. He's demonstrating that these men that are after him, whatever this struggle is, whatever this conflict or this confrontation is, it is by people that are unrighteous, people that are opposed to you, people that don't seek goodness. They have aligned themselves with evil things, with things that don't please you. These are the people that you don't protect, that you don't save. These are the people that you judge. And you are my hope. And I put my trust in you. Even from my youth, he says in verse 5. It's wonderful what we see in verse 6 where he says, By you I have been sustained from my birth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. There's that word continually again. We can continually come to God and we can continually praise God. And why do we do that? Because he's saying that God has been in work in my life from the very start. You have sustained me from my birth. You took me out of my mother's womb. The Bible says you knit me together in my mother's womb. We turn to Psalm 22. You don't have to turn with me. In Psalm 22 we read, Yet you are he who brought me out of the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breasts. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Even when I didn't know you, even when I didn't understand the things of righteousness, And and unrighteousness, you have been my God. You have created me. You have sustained me. And I'm putting my trust in you and you alone. There was a great passage I remember when we were going through church history together. And I had to give the lesson on uh, the time period of Augustine. And I was reading through his confessions. And I read this great quote from him where he said... And yet the consolations of your mercy have sustained me from the very beginning. Even though they sustained me by the consolation of woman's milk, neither my mother nor my nurses filled their own breasts, but you through them did give me the food of infancy according to your ordinance and your bounty which underlie all things. That's understanding who God is. That's understanding the providential nature and capacity of God. Not only that he would save you, not only that he would protect you, but that even from the first moments in which you were born, he made all things work together to give you life and to sustain your life. That is the God that we know. That is the Lord, Yahweh, the one who has saved us and protected us. And because of that, because of that alone, the psalmist says, I will praise you continually. Because we start to see time become a factor in this psalm. It's God who is sustaining us. It's his providential care as we went through our study in providence. It's God writing the history and the story of your life one word at a time, one act at a time. With every single thing that happens to you, every single thing that's happening around you, every single thing you do, every beat of your heart, every molecule that's happening, it's all happening. It's happening for his glory, but he's making it work for your good as well. That's why we can turn to the Lord, our God. 
as we move into the next stanza, we see that despite all of this trust that the psalmist have, we still see that in this preceding verses, we still see something that looks like fear. We still see this pleading that he's doing. He's putting his trust in God, but he seems all the more anxious to receive his protection. And then as we look in verses 7 through 11, we understand why. Because the psalmist seems to be dealing with fear, and specifically the fear of men. He's dealing with the fear of men, plural, right? The enemies that seem to be counseling together to to seize him and take him into bondage. But he's also dealing with himself. He seems to be wrestling with the fact that he wants to be... um, he doesn't want God to, to, to fail him as his own strength fails, as his own, uh, as his own age starts to get the better of him. So we see in verse 7 and 8, I have become a marvel to many, for you are my strong refuge. My mouth is filled with your praise and with your beauty all day long. Right? My faith and my trust is in you despite my trials and my pursuing enemies. They are actually confounded that despite all my problems, I'm still putting my trust in you. They're confounded that despite all my problems, I'm still standing. They don't understand it. They can't comprehend it. I've become a marvel because you, not a marvel because I've done anything, a marvel because you are my strong refuge. But then he says in verse 9, do not cast me off in the time of old age. Do not forsake me when my strength fails. For my enemies have spoken against me. Don't abandon me when I need you the most. The psalmist is seeing time as an enemy. He's starting to see. uh, Some people want to say this is a psalm of, of getting old. It's not necessarily a psalm of getting old. It's about a man that's simply starting to realize that there's fewer days ahead than they are behind. Right? He says, when my strength fails, when I'm old and gray. That's what he's dealing with. But even if it was about getting older, this is not a psalm for the old. If you're a young believer in Jesus Christ, this psalm can be of great encouragement to you too. I can't tell you, one of the first things that when I was, first became a believer, a little over 10 years now, I was originally listening to Bible studies online. And one of the most encouraging things for me, because I was still struggling with sin in my life. I believed in Jesus Christ. I put my faith in him wholly, but I was still struggling with sin. And then I heard a Bible study online from some guy I was listening to. And there was a, an older Christian who stood up and he gave a, a wonderful testimony about how God was continuing to love him and strengthen him and teach him, even though he was still struggling with sins. An older Gentleman that was still struggling with sin of lust. He still would look at younger women and he would still be tempted in his heart and in his mind. And he's like, thank God I haven't done anything stupid, but I still struggle with it. And I know I have to turn to God. And that was the moment where it all sort of fell into place for me. And I realized, wow, this is never going away. I'm not good. There's not going to be a point where I stop sinning. I'm always going to struggle with sin. And you are always going to struggle with sin. But the point is, do you find solace there? Do you turn to it? Do you run to sin and find joy there? Or do you turn to your refuge? Do you turn to God and say, God, I'm still a sinner. I'm still corrupted by the sin nature that's within me. 
Please protect me. Please save me. Please be the one to overcome this sin within me. Do not cast me off in a time of old age. Do not forsake me when my strength fails. His enemies have spoken against him. They watch his life. They've counseled together. They're starting to gang up on him. They can't get to him one-on-one, so they take pleasure in one another, trying to seek ways in which they can overtake him together. They say God has forsaken him. Pursue and seize him, for there is no one to deliver. They are looking for any opportunity to get the psalmist. I remember when we were going for... Uh, me and a couple of the brothers from church a few years back, we were going through the book Mortification of Sin by John Owen. And he pointed out that, that sin is always looking to get you. And not just get you, to overwhelm you, to overtake you, to completely control your life. Sin doesn't want you to cheat on your wife. Sin wants you to divorce your wife. Sin wants you to hate your wife and doesn't want you to cheat on her with many women, but to divorce her, cast her aside and have uh, sexual encounters with as many people as possible. It wants sin to be defining and controlling in every aspect of your wife. It wants you to get angry. It wants you to, to, to lash out at people. It wants you to get violent. It wants you to kill people. That's what sin wants. It will take what it can get, but it wants everything from you. That's what sin wants. And they always assume that God cannot do enough to protect you. But they are always wrong. So what do you do when you feel the pressure from the world? What do you do when you feel that pressure to sin? What do you do when you feel this world telling you that God's books are just old books written by old men? They are old ways of thinking. And especially when according to the world, the way the world works and the way the world looks right now, it looks like they're kind of winning. More and more people are turning from God. Churches are becoming more and more empty. People are becoming more and more hostile to truth. They're doing whatever they can to declare that truth is unknowable. There's nothing objective anymore. We can make up our own minds. We can self-determine what this world could be. It's up to us. It's not up to God. Well, if you're like me, you ignore them. And you put your trust in God anyways. Because he has already demonstrated who he is. He's already demonstrated him to be an honest Source of information. He's already demonstrated himself to be powerful. He's already demonstrated himself in my life to completely transform me and give me a new heart with new intention. I would hope that he's doing the same thing for you right now. So we move into the third stanza. We see desperation. Oh God. Oh wait, no, I'm sorry. Verse 12. Oh God, do not be far from me. Oh my God, hasten to my help. Let those who accuse my soul be ashamed and consumed. Let them be wrapped up with reproach and dishonor who seek to do me evil. In the very beginning of this psalm, he said, let me not be ashamed. Don't let me fall into disrepute. Let these men fall into disrepute. 
These are the unrighteous men. These are the enemies of your people. These are the enemies of you. Don't let the things that I've come to know about you and put my trust in you fall to nothing. Continue to establish them. Continue to to bring to remembrance all the things that you've done. Demonstrate how you've saved me even here and now. These men are not putting their faith in you. They're putting their faith in the world. Demonstrate to them how the world will fall apart. How all the things that they can put their faith in within the world will all come to nothingness. And then we find that word one more time in verse 14. But as for me, I will wait continually. He's saying, I will be patient. Every single one of my enemies is coming after me. They're counseling together and they're seeking to do me evil. And I will do nothing. I will wait and I will put my trust in you and you alone. Because you are my protector. I don't protect myself. You're the only one that can defend me. You are the only one that can save me. I trust you and I will wait for you. I will put my faith in you. And I will praise you yet more and more. As it said before, I will praise you continually. My mouth shall recount your righteousness and of your salvation all day long. There is no other form of salvation. There's no other source of salvation. Psalm 60 says, Oh, give us help against the adversary, for salvation by man is worthless. Do you understand what that means? That means there's no other source of salvation. Any salvation you think you can get from man, whether it's yourself or someone that you know, someone that you love, there is no other relationship that can save you except your relationship with Jesus Christ. Husbands, your wives can't save you. Wives, your husbands can't save you. Mothers, fathers, your children can't save you. Children, your parents can't save you. You should trust in them and do what they say, but they can't save you. They should be teaching you about the Lord your God. There's no brother or sister. There's no employer or relationship with anything else in the world that can save you. It's only God that can save you. Salvation of man is nothing. It's your salvation I will praise, I will recount your righteousness and of your salvation all day long. For I do not know the sum of them. I come with the mighty deeds of the Lord Yahweh. I bring to remembrance your righteousness, yours alone. I will recount your righteousness. What is he talking about? I will bring to remembrance. What is he talking about? In the Old Testament, the only thing they would recount, the thing that they would recount the most often, the thing we already brought up, coming out of Egypt. When God, the mighty Lord Yahweh, took them from bondage and delivered them, made them a grand people and took them from Pharaoh, delivered them out of the land of Egypt. He brought the ten plagues on the Pharaoh and then he, developed, you know, he delivered that final tenth plague, which was the, the killing of the firstborn of Egypt. And in order for the Israelites to be saved, what did they do? They had a Passover feast in which they killed and slaughtered a lamb and they ate the entire lamb and they put the door over the post so that they would be spared the judgment of having their firstborn killed. 
And that was a, a festival that happened every year. God often had them practice the festival of Passover, the feast of Passover, so that they would constantly be reminded of how God delivered them. But what was the Passover? It was something that looked forward to something greater, which was that true Passover lamb, that one lamb that could actually truly save people, not just the people of God's chosen people, but people from every tongue and every tribe and every nation, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our Passover lamb. And what do we do every Lord's Day? We're going to celebrate it next week. We're going to have, or not every Lord's Day, but when we, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, next week it's going to be before us. And Jesus Christ instituted it. And he said, you do this in remembrance of me. Recount what I have done for you. Everything from the Old Testament pointed to him. All the things that we do now point back to Jesus Christ. It's all about him. This is what we recount. This is what we remember. I will bring to remembrance your righteousness, yours alone. The goodness of God is the primary concern of the psalmist. He wants to make sure that everyone understands that it's God's goodness that he's depending on. That he will be protected because God has already promised to protect him. He will be protected because God has already demonstrated in the past as he looks back, that God will protect his people regardless of what has to be done to do it. He will come to our aid. He will be our strong defender. He will sustain us through it all. God is our protector and our savior. He's resting on the goodness of God. He's being comforted. He's being encouraged. He's being renewed. And now he seeks to declare them as we move into verse 17 in that next stanza. See, O oh God, you have taught me from my youth and I still declare your wondrous deeds. And even when I am old and gray, O oh God, do not forsake me until I declare your strength to this generation, your might to all who are to come. For your righteousness, O oh God, reaches to the heavens. You who have done great things, O oh God, who is like you, you have demonstrated your goodness. You have demonstrated it to me, and I want to declare it to everyone. It's not just for me. I want everyone to know of this glorious God that has saved me, this glorious God that is protecting me. I want everyone to know about it. But once again, in verse 18, we see once again, he's worried that he might not have enough time. And when I am old and gray, O oh God, do not forsake me until I declare your strength to this generation. He's starting to see that time is short. He's wondering how much time he might have left. And I think he's wondering how he's going to finish. I don't know about you, but I've seen some people as they've reached the end of their life and some of them change. They start to get sad. They start to get miserable. Some of them start to get angry. 
Some of them change from people that are very pleasant to deal with and they just start getting downright nasty. As for me, that's something that haunts me sometimes because I've seen it happen. And one of the things that encourages me, one of the things that I, that I seek to follow is Brother Paul, who's not here with us today. But you could see that man lives and breathes Bible. It's truly written on his heart. I don't know if there's much left of the world in that man. And if his strength started to fail him, if things started to change in him, I think he'd have more in his heart and in his mind to rely on from the Bible than from the world. Like one of those, who was it, John, I forget, was it John Wesley or John Newton, who when he was dying, he said, I remember, I don't see, I can't even see anything anymore, but I remember but two things, that I am a great sinner and God is a great savior. Time is short. Do whatever you can to purge the world from you. Read your Bible. Learn to trust it. Learn what it says. I struggle with that too, but it's something that we need to do. I'm not talking about verse memory. I don't care anything about verse memory. I don't care if you know what Romans 1.28 says. I don't care. Just read the Bible. Take in the words. Not verse per verse. Read what it says. Learn what God is teaching you. Mm-hmm. Write it on your heart as much as you can now before you start to lose your senses. Verse 20. We read, You have shown me many troubles and evils, and you will revive me again and will bring me up again from the depths of the earth. May you increase greatness and turn to comfort me. Many troubles and evils. That's actually a really encouraging verse to me. As we said, this psalmist might not be at the beginning of his life. He might not be at the end. But he's already been carried through so much. God has already protected him. He has strengthened him. He has sustained him through many troubles and evils. I've gone through my share. I'm assuming you've gone through your share. If you're a young Christian... You're going to go through your share of troubles and evils. But it doesn't mean God is going to forsake you. Doesn't mean he's going to let you go. I got so low that I thought I was done. And God brought me back. You know, and I'm not trying to prop myself up, but I'm here preaching to you. That's what God can do in a man. Make him think he is completely lost and then raise him up to proclaim his goodness and his glory to other people. That is what God does in people. He uses weakness. That's, right. That's why we can boast in our infirmities. Say, yes, I'm a weak man, but God can raise me up. God can sustain me. God can encourage me. And I can encourage you with God's word. He will revive me. That's not just a revival. It's not like, you know, it's not just bringing some life. It's not rejuvenating something. It literally means to make alive again. He will revive me. He will make me live again. He will bring me up From the depths of the earth, he will resurrect me to a eternal life. That is what we look forward to. And now that he's made his case for that, now he's made his case for why he trusts in God. What does he do now? He praises God with all of his heart. 
In the final stanza, I will also praise you with a harp, even your truth, O my God, to you I will sing praises with the lyre, O holy one of Israel. My lips will sing for joy when I sing praises to you, and my soul, which you have redeemed, my tongue also will utter your righteousness all day long. He uses praise over and over. I will also praise you. I will sing praises. My lips will sing for joy when I sing praises to you. He is lifting up God in glory. He is glorifying him with all of his heart and soul, saying, God, you are magnificent. The things that you have done in my life, the things that you have done in the lives of your people. I trust you. I know you. I'm going to sing and I'm going to be joyful when I sing. Because you are trustworthy. You are my God. He calls him, O Holy One of Israel. That is a very special title. It's not used often in the Bible, but it's used very often in the book of Isaiah. I think it's used over 20 times in the book of Isaiah alone. It's not used elsewhere in in the Old Testament much. In Isaiah 43, verse 14, we read, Thus says Yahweh, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. For your sake I have sent to Babylon and will bring down those who fled, all of them, even the Chaldeans, into ships in which they shouted for joy. I am Yahweh, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. To say that He is the Holy One means that He is unique. He is set apart. He's not like others. He's not like you. He's not like me. He's not like other gods. He's real. He is perfect in every way, shape, and form. And it says that you have redeemed my soul. Verse 23. We sang earlier, you are my rock and my redeemer. Gracious savior of my ruined life. My unending need. You're the one that restores my soul. Right? Psalm 23, he restoreth my soul and leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. He will bring me new life. He will bring me life abundantly and he will do it so that he is glorified and he is magnified. We should be all the more eager to praise him and to glorify him for that. For what he has done in restoring our very souls. But not everyone gets restored, do they? So I start to conclude. I put it to you. It says in verse 17, I will declare your wondrous deeds. The greatest deed that God ever did was sending his son, Jesus Christ, To suffer and die on a cross to pay the fine for sinners. Because on that cross, he suffered a death that I didn't want to die. It was a death I absolutely deserved to die because of my sins against God. But God restored me. Not only did he kill his own son, he resurrected Jesus Christ He brought his life back and he ascended to the right hand of the Father where he intercedes on my behalf. And then he sent his Holy Spirit to transform me, 
and to transform many of you to a renewed, sustained, eternal life in Jesus Christ. Amen. The question is, are you putting your faith in Jesus Christ? If you're not putting your faith in Jesus Christ, if you don't believe he suffered, if you don't believe he came, if you don't believe he died on the cross, if you don't believe he was resurrected, there's no salvation for you. You are one of the enemies that the psalmist speaks of. The dividing line there is faith. The decision of trust. Who are you going to put your trust in? Are you going to put your trust in the Bible and in God and Jesus Christ and what he has done for you? Or are you going to put your trust in yourself and think that you know better? Watching a sermon by James White recently, and he said, the opposite of saving faith is haughty self-reliance. People that are so prideful that they think they will get there on their own. You can't get there on your own. You can only get there through believing and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. As I come to a quick close, I'd like to read you a quick passage. I was reading some commentaries about this passage and I came across this wonderful passage by Spurgeon which he wrote about this psalm. He wrote specifically about verse 7. I have become a marvel to many. It's a little lengthy but I'll read it as quickly as I can where he says the saints are men wondered at. Often their dark side is gloomy even to amazement while their bright side is glorious even to astonishment. This believer is a riddle. An enigma puzzling the unspiritual. He is a monster warring with those delights of the flesh, which are the all in all of other men. He is a prodigy unaccountable to the judgments of ungodly men. A wonder, gazed at, feared, and by and by contemptuously derided. Few understand us. Many are surprised at us, but thou art my strong refuge. Here is the answer to our riddle. If we are strong, it is in God. If we are safe, our refuge shelters us. If we are calm, our soul hath found her stay in God. When faith is understood and the grounds of her confidence seen, the believer is no longer a wonder, but the marvel is that so much unbelief remains among the sons of men. If you still aren't willing to put your faith in Jesus Christ, I remind you how this psalm ends in verse 24. For they are ashamed, for they are humiliated who seek to do me evil. Beginning of this psalm, this psalmist was begging God not to let him be ashamed. He was asking for shame instead to fall upon those that were seeking to do him evil. Here we see it comes true. They are ashamed. They are humiliated who seek to do him evil. In Revelation 16, we read about those that were, I'm sorry, Revelation 6, we read about those who are facing the wrath of God. And they seek to hide themselves in the rocks as well. But there was no salvation there. And instead, they were asking God to let the mountains just fall on them and destroy them utterly. Because they would rather face destruction from the mountains than face the wrath of God. That's the best rock and hiding place and fortress they will ever find 
is destruction and they will still see the wrath of God on the other side of it anyways. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. There's no alternative. As I said before, boast in your infirmities. These men lost their integrity. Don't lose yours. Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. All of you, trust in God. Be blessed, be holy, and continually come and praise and wait on him. Wait on the Lord Yahweh as your refuge. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, in light of who you've demonstrated yourself to be, Lord, in light of who you are, in light of who your word teaches us you are, let us turn to you, Father, as our only source of hope, as our only refuge, as our only rock, as our only salvation. Thank you, Jesus Christ, for saving us. Thank you, Jesus Christ, for being that rock of ages, for being that one that we can truly come to, that we can truly be safe in because you've already defeated our truest enemy, and that is the enemy of death. Let us praise you and glorify you and thank you, not just now, but in the life to, of come, life to come for all eternity. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.